Welcome. You're listening to Activist NYC, the podcast on Family FM, recording inside Canal Street Radio. I am your host, Cindy Trin. Activist NYC is an ongoing documentary photo project about activism and social justice movements in New York City. This podcast is an extension of my Activist NYC project and will include interviews with activists, organizers, and political leaders in our city. My goal is to learn about what motivates activists to do the hard work they dedicate their lives to and discuss the important issues surrounding the people of New York. Stay with us. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. My guest today is Raphael Shimanoff, an artist and activist in Queens, New York, who serves as a board member of Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, also known as JFRESH. Prior to this, he was one of the many early leaders of If Not Now and served as creative director for the National Working Families Party, which organized its 12 state organizations to primary corporate Democrats with progressive ones. Deeply involved in immigration justice, his life personal narrative during the JFK airport protests of the Muslim ban reached over 16 million viewers. Most recently, Raphael has helped take nearly 30 years of JFRED's Jewish organizing into electoral power by co-founding the Jewish Vote, a sister org that endorses and campaigns for progressive candidates in New York by mobilizing Jewish voters. Prior to joining the fight, he cut his teeth at and helped to win awards for ad agencies, the very same Fortune 500 corporations he works to push back at today. Welcome, Raphael. Hi, how you doing? There's so much that could be said about you, by the way. That bio that we just went through is maybe just a fraction of what you do, <laughs> right? It's, yeah. Um, we, we actually met um, back in 2011, right, during Occupy Wall Street when we were uh, doing legal observing, you were actually like uh, under my wing. Oh yeah, for sure. It was. Uh, they were so desperate for legal observers that it was the first time because Occupy was so big. It was the first time they admitted non-lawyers. So yeah. They they let me in. I did like some training, and then <laughs> they they connected me with you, and we walked around Occupy making sure uh, police were held accountable. And the rest is history, and we've been friends ever since. <laughs> but thank you again for coming here today. I really appreciate it. Um, you are really one of my role models in this movement. I follow your work all the time, and I'm always just in awe of what you do. Um, could you just give a little background about yourself uh, for the listeners, just you know, your um, history and your personal background, where you grew up, and um, you know, your identities and things like that? Yeah. First of all, I just wanted to say, like, the space here at Canal Street Radio <laughs> is kind of amazing. Yeah, it's, isn't it's, it? It's, it's like in the middle of Canal Street in Chinatown in Manhattan. Uh, and, I'm, you know, I'm Central Asian. Uh, you're Southeast Asian. And, and, you know, we have them surrounded. We have uh, East Asia surrounded right now. <laughs> <laughs> we <I> think, do. <laughs> just the two of us. Yeah. This it's really beautiful. great just, like, communities, like, coming together, helping each other out. I mean, that's... You know, shout out to Listening Party Presents and Canal Street Radio for allowing me this space because 
Um, you know, I think that's what we need in communities of color, especially, is to support one another. So I'm really glad that that you're you feel comfortable in this space. This is uh, really one of the um, coolest spaces in New York, and I think it's really up and coming. And this neighborhood, you know, is just up and coming and um, allowing, you know, artists to come here and do their thing. I, I, I think it's it's such a great way for, um, you know, organizations to to give back to the community. So yeah, thanks yeah. for being here. I really appreciate it. So yeah, like um, speaking of that, like there's, there's very few places anyone from Queens is uncomfortable in. I'm from <laughs> Flushing, Queens. Um, the only place I ever really felt uncomfortable in was maybe like Santa Monica or something. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but, but that, even there, even there was beautiful. But um, uh, basically, yeah, I, I grew up. Um, well, my parents were refugees from uh, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan uh, when it was dominated by the Soviet Union, and uh, they uh, became refugees and fled uh, through Europe. On, uh, they've been in the news a lot, HIAS, uh, which is the refugee agency that was in the middle of the, uh, the motivation of some of the, the people, the person who shot up the synagogue. Um, part of his motivation was immigrants um, and that they supported immigration. And that group is actually the group that helped uh, bring us here. Uh, when my parents pretty much had nowhere to go. I was two years old, and my mom was pregnant with my, my sister, and uh, we ended up landing in Brooklyn. Uh, and somehow we, we had it to Queens out of Brooklyn. All my friends are in Brooklyn right now, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we headed to Queens, and I haven't left Flushing, Flushing Queens since I was, you know, since I was a kid. So, um, you know, being a from a family of refugees myself, I think that's maybe a reason why I connect to you because, um, you know, my parents came here from Vietnam. They fled the war and came here in 1975, and they were refugees too, and they weren't accepted in America at first. Um, it took many, many years uh, to build the community and and still even still now right like a lot of the racial issues that asian americans face is this constant uh perception that we are foreign that we don't belong here and so my my mom and my my family they they struggled with that constantly and i'm sure your family went through that same struggle right um this yearning to find a home somewhere and ha coming here and not being accepted by the people, it's a really hurtful feeling, right? And it scars people. And, and, I, and I look at what's happening right now, the refugee crisis that we're going through, you know, with the Syrian refugee crisis and our borders, um, what's happening right now on our borders is just, it's just unbelievable. And... I feel so much for those people because they are fleeing terrorism. They are fleeing persecution. They are fleeing that which um, means to harm them. And we should be, we are supposed to be a country that will accept them, but we're not anymore. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you feel about what's going on right now? Like being from, you know, family of refugees, like, well, how do you feel about what's happening at our borders? I guess... I, 
I always go back to the stuff that gets me through the stuff when I see that stuff or when I hear it or when I'm working with dreamers or anyone that's like, uh, in the, you know, like under, under the gun right now. Um, there was this, this moment in JFK when they announced the Muslim ban and I was there with my cell phone, uh, streaming for working families party and, uh, it blew up out of nowhere on my hand, like just watching so many people log on uh, was incredible. But as I was walking, I, I was trying to go back. I was going between the protest and the airport, back and forth, back and forth. And um, uh, there was one moment, because I had to get batteries and this, it was freezing, I wanted to get gloves. Like it was, it was a long haul. And um, as I was coming back to the protest, someone assumed that I was... Uh, immigrant that I just came here and she welcomed me to America and smiled <laughs> and my immediate reaction was to be angry with her because how dare you <laughs> you're from you know you're from F you know you're from you know I don't know where you're from you might be from Milwaukee <laughs> and you've come here you're protesting bless you for that bless you for coming out and supporting it but how dare you this is my city <laughs> and uh so immediately i went to anger but then later on after the whole thing died down and we watched the airport protests spread through the country uh, and all the court challenges uh i actually like if i could find her i would actually thank her because not for her being you know insensitive but for her inadvertently reminding me of what it could feel like if regular everyday Americans were at the airport when people come through and not the government. And it would be a whole different experience because I basically walked the path that my parents walked when they landed here. And I got to experience it as a grown man instead of a two-year-old. And I got to look in all these people's eyes hear their songs. It was the most New York moment ever. I always like to say, like, you saw pizza boxes with where people didn't have markers, so they used their keys to cut out their message on a pizza box. You saw, you know, people who never came out to protest in their life going to the airport. No one goes to the airport on purpose, right? And they did. And 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 then all the people, the, the millions of people who logged on through my phone to watch those are people who wanted to be there with us, right? So I, I always go back to those moments and I actually cherish, like, I just remembered in slow motion walking in, hearing people say, you are welcome, uh, you're safe, we got you, the songs, there was, like, uh, there was like Jews there, Catholics there, Muslims there, all using their own traditions. It was so, it was so beautiful. So that's really what gives me kind of hope. It, it's... It's not to get stuck in this idea that what the government does defines us at all. They're very far from what people think. Even people who say they support government stuff, as you know, we've, we've, we've done things where we knock on doors or we canvas or we tell people stuff. They can come at you with, I Trump and, you know, like Republicans. Blah, blah, blah. And then when you ask them issue by issue, they sound like Bernie Sanders. And like it's it's there's some kind of identity stuff we're gonna unravel, I think, and it's painful right now because I I really think we're growing, and the catch is to grow fast enough 
and united enough before the opposition does their death throes to, to eliminate democracy right in time before we, you know, before we make our voices heard or to eliminate liberty, uh, which they're working on right now every day. Yeah, I, I mean, I just when you're talking about the feeling that you were, feel, you know, what, that you were experiencing at JFK Airport that night, I was at the courthouse because the very same night there were, you know, emergency court hearings happening, and so I was at the Brooklyn courthouse, and the energy was incredible. It was. Something like, I've, I mean, we've been pro protesting in the streets for a long time together. Um, and, you know, from Occupy to now, there's been so much, you know, in between. But that night felt, the energy felt so surreal. It was, you know, people were just like chanting and, and hooting and hollering. And like, you know, the lawyer came out. And for the first time, a lawyer was was more famous than Beyonce. Yeah. Like, there, here's a lawyer <laughs> more famous than Beyonce and Jay Z. Like, that, like that's like, like yeah, like, like they literally had Beyonce status <laughs> out there. Like, they were just like, like people were just like, yes, yeah. you, you can do it. Like, cheering on these lawyers, and the energy was so incredible. And I was just like, you know, as much as. There are a lot of people out there who are constantly working to divide us and block us and hurt us. We also have a lot of people that support us. And New York especially is one of those cities, I think, right? I mean, New York is just so special. And that's why, you know, I started my Activist NYC project here because I think activists here are really special and we bring a lot to the table and we bring a lot of our emotion and our passions and you know people really care here and it's because like the city is so diverse and it's built on so many immigrants who have come to 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 America and so you know New York is just really special and unique I think and and the, and just seeing some of the energy that I have at protests it's really it's really opened my eyes because it's so daunting right when you're constantly hearing in the news what Donald Trump is doing today and what Russia is doing today and you know what what the GOP is doing today like more <laughs> more horrible more horrible things to hor to people of color and and LGBTQ and and you know women <laughs> and it's hard not to feel daunted by that right it's hard not to feel so discouraged like what can you do what can we do what can any of us do? And I think just finding that role that you can play in the movement, just whatever small role that you can. You know, for me, it's being a photographer, being a photojournalist, and now being a podcaster. <laughs> um, I feel like this is my role now to bring news and bring information and, you know, create narratives and create visuals and uh, document moments in our history. And I think that's what I can do as a part of this movement. And I think everybody else can find their own, 
you know, role that they can play, yeah. right? And and so, like, what what do you feel is your role? Like, what do you think is is? Are you an educator? Are you a, an artist? Are you activist? Are you, I mean, all of it. You could be all of it, right? So so, what do you see yourself like yeah, in this movement? Like, what is your role? I guess there's a few. I I feel like one is like overarching is that just being my age, I'm in the I'm in this cusp between. Gen Xers and millennials, right? I call it a Xennial. Yeah, I'm the same. You're the I'm you're Xennial, an Xennial too. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Xennials are busy every day explaining, like they're this bridge between these millennials who are really asking for things that the great generation actually had, you know, like, you know, uh, Jobs, <laughs> healthcare, free college, education, uh, yeah. education, you know, organic fruit was just fruit, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like it was just, you know, all of that. And then, you know, there's something symbolic about watching a millennial tear the plastic linoleum off a hardwood floor that the greatest generation installed because some boomers, no disrespect, but like some boomers decided that they're going to cover hardwood floor with uh, plastic. Um so I'm I'm always I'm often a communicator, right? And and I often find myself in the middle of that where trying to make sense of boomers to millennials and trying to make sense of millennials to boomers, which it's kind of fun because I don't get blamed for anything even though <laughs> our generation had its had had its great things, you know, we we saved social security, uh we we were organizing before it was cool, but we also uh, messed up. I, at least, I can speak for myself. I feel like if I was 25, when I was 25, I wasn't doing what 25-year-olds are doing right now. Like, you know, they're changing the world. I was, I was looking for which dot-com was going to, you know, have a bowling alley or this or that. <laughs> and, and it's not like I didn't come from something that should have forged me in a in a in a social service way. Like I grew up in the projects. I grew up, uh, I worked in a warehouse. I assembled bicycles. Like people were, like I said somewhere, uh, people were literally throwing like socialist <laughs> like <laughs> literature at me or anything just to change my mind about like my pull them up by the bootstraps attitude that I, that I had uh, in my youth. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Cause uh, yeah, we, I'm a senile too. Right. And, um, thinking about like my own childhood growing up, like I grew up really poor because my parents, you know, they had just came here from another country. So I was really poor growing up. And, um, you know, I obviously like have that immigrant mentality of um, always having to pull yourself from the bootstraps, yeah, yeah. like you said, and, and working really hard and constantly, um, you know, constantly having to work just work for what I want. Like, I had to earn it, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, a lot of millennials now are always criticized for being lazy or whatever. And, like, it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to, to make it when you've got so many road barriers up against you. Yeah, yeah like, student debt and, you know, lack of employment out there and constant poverty and the gap between the wealthy and the poor just getting worse and worse and worse. And, you know, it's, it's like, uh, why are we criticizing mm. this young group of people when they are facing the hardest, you know, the hardest roadblocks 
in their lives right now. And when I was like 20, you know, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, all I cared about was getting drunk, <laughs> um, boys, uh, you know, like going to the beach. Yeah. Like, that's what I cared about. And then now I'm looking at kids like the Parkland yeah. students, right? And these are high school kids mm -hmm. organizing on a national level. Like, when I think about when I was in high school, could I have done that? Probably yeah. not. Wow. No way. I don't think I could have done that. And that just proves that the, that the younger generation, they're so smart. Yeah. They're so smart. They're, they're talented and they're motivated and they're dedicated and they've, they know so much. Like, I don't think I knew, you know, half of what they know now when I was in high school. So I see them as, you know, people like the future leaders of our country, yeah. right? Millennials are the future leaders of our country because, um, for all the bad rap that they get about being lazy, um, I see them as the smartest people in our country right now. And I see them as our only hope <laughs> because they're a lot smarter than any of us, <laughs> right? I, I, I say we could take some credit. Okay, right? yeah, like, we'll take a little credit. You know, <laughs> the they, they learned a few a things credit. from like yeah, Nirvana yeah. at a yeah, certain point. Yeah, they did. And then, yeah, they did. <laughs> they learned a few <laughs> tricks from us, right? I mean, we're not that yeah. dumb. Yeah. <laughs> I'm <laughs> just kidding. No, but like, I, yeah, that's true. Like we all kind of learn from each other. Um, and I, I like that I can learn from younger people too. Yeah. Like I learn from younger people all the time because they, they just have like a different vocabulary, yeah. you know, like a different language to them. That My, yeah. Yeah, my, my right? favorite part is the, it's actually really, it makes my job harder. Like I used to work in advertising and it was pretty easy to do bad things in advertising back then. Oh, yeah. And I didn't really know, like, the difference, but, like, we would do pretty horrible things. We would be told to, you know, do this for a skin company, do this ad where you have the before and after picture. And I didn't know why. Like, I made this ugly before picture. Like, I put 25 pimples on, on her nose, you know, <laughs> and then a Aww. beautiful after picture. And then they were like, no, 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 you don't get it. And they came to my desk and... They showed me, no, you just need two pimples and make, make her look amazing. And the idea is like psychological, and I didn't understand that, was that when a young woman looks at the before picture and sees that it's actually even more beautiful and more pristine and healthier looking than what she feels about herself, that she, and then that, that she would even kill to be the before picture that that makes someone buy something because we buy things when we're depressed. We buy things when we use them to fill holes. And what I was paid for was making holes in people. That's so depressing. It's extremely <laughs> depressing. And I, if we did it now, like they would look at it and they would laugh because they would get it immediately. It would be on Jezebel the next day. Right. Someone would have recorded the meeting. That company would have like uh, had to do like some kind of community service about like self-esteem. But really what's still missing, even with millennials, is we're, we, we're watching them call, make people accountable but we're not, and, and see through BS. But we don't see what true accountability, and I think like my daughter, like Gen Z, is gonna, is gonna come with some idea that we can't even think of, of how, what's the next step after that? You're holding someone accountable. When you see their, their ad, you see the matrix, right? You're, you're like, oh, I see what you're doing. 
And millennials are really good at seeing that. And I'm wondering what's after that and how are they going to just act on what they see immediately that's so interesting like, like you mentioned your daughter yeah how's your, how old is your daughter yeah, and yeah. and what have you seen in your daughter that that oh, you know can it's beautiful um she's nine she's nine we're in, <laughs> we're in flushing so uh the most legit activity for her that's near us was taekwondo right <laughs> so she signed up for taekwondo she was the second student of the dojo ever the first one quit so she's the longest student there Wow. And now she's approaching a black belt, right? And uh, the the master of the school, Master Justin, shout out, you're the best. The master of the school is comes up to me and says, you know, I don't know why my dojo is the majority girls and every other dojo in Queens is mostly boys. And I wanted to smack him. But I, of course, that would be suicide because he would murder. <laughs> but, but, uh, but I just felt like, how dare you? My daughter has been kicking boys' butts in your storefront dojo. And little girls have been watching her do it for years and signing up because they saw an empowered girl. And kicking boys' butts that are older than her, bigger than her, more aggressive than her. Wow. And doing it humbly and, and picking them up when they fall. You know, like, it's amazing what she did. And now, like, the, the, the most powerful part to me that I love to brag about is not, like, the belt and not the trophies. It's when she, when she gets the trophy, right? She goes up to, to the master, and she has all these little girls around her, like, half her size, and all these little uniforms. And they're all different color belts. And they all call, go up to the master, and they say, uh, we've been getting a lot of these trophies. Uh, how come none of them have girls on them? <laughs> and they look at, you know, all the trophies have boys on them. Yeah. And if there is a woman on the trophy, she's like holding up a star over the boy, the man, you know, like, and uh, and he he didn't have an answer. So she, in that point, did the millennial thing, right? Which is like, oh, this is unfair. I'm going to say it. I'm going to do it in a way that's not going to throw you away. And we're going to talk about it. I'm wondering when she gets older, what's next? Are they going to maybe make their own trophies? Are they going to say no trophies? Are they going to... You know, I don't know. I can't even imagine. And I'm really excited. I'm a big fan. Of course, like every dad of their daughter. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, having a daughter, right? I mean, in this society right now, I mean, are you worried? Are you hopeful? Uh, because looking at, you know, just how women are treated in this country, how women are treated all over the world, really, but in, in this country in particular right now, like, all, all this, all this talk from like Donald Trump about yeah. how he, you know, how he treats women essentially, yeah. and how this is a role model for some people. I mean, yeah. like I'm not obviously not for <laughs> me, but you know how. But he, it, but people do respect him. He has millions mm -hmm. of followers. It's it's hard to believe, but mm -hmm. I mean is this where our country is going? Like, what does it mean for women right now? And, mm -hmm. you know, especially for, for, for the daughters right now of yeah. this country. I mean, are you worried or are you hopeful? What do you think? I, I worry sometimes. I wonder, like my wife, when she talks about it, has she said, had we had a child later and seen a little more exposed, she would actually have to think about it. And my friends... You know, I have, the, I guess back to the millennial thing, I have friends who 
they kind of also give me like remind me the privilege that I have with with my daughter because not I don't think parenting is for everyone and it's probably great that not everyone chooses to be a parent because <laughs> if you don't choose it don't do it right but uh for the people who want it like uh my friends who are struggling they have like three four people in a room in, in, in an apartment they're doing like so you know jobs that are improving the world they're on student debt you know competing for very little and with the very little they have which is a netflix subscription and uh, that they share and the student debt they want like some of them want a child at some point and they have to actually like they tell me and they confide in me i just can't i can't afford it and i'll never have a child i i totally relate to that because i'm 35 and I'm not married. I don't have kids. And so obviously I get those questions all the time. Like, when are you going to have kids? Oh, you got the immigrant, uh, immigrant parents the question. immigrant parents. <laughs> like, when you get me granddaughter, give me grandkids. Stop. Don't fall yeah. for it because once you do, they're on, they ask you about the second one. And my grandma, <laughs> she lied to me. She made up. Oh, my God. She made up a legend <laughs> from Central Asia that whenever a baby's born, like somehow the universe just gives you the bag of money. Like that money, <laughs> don't worry about money. Just have the baby, have the baby. And she would like, she would encourage my wife to wear like sexy clothes. They would go away. They would be like, if you need my house. Like they did not <laughs> care. They rigged, they rigged the situation. And then once we had it, it doesn't stop. Yeah, don't nah. don't fall yeah. for it. It yeah. doesn't stop. They it, want. They'll keep asking. Yeah, yeah. They will not stop. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I'm getting those questions, you know, and and I'm I I I love kids. I love kids. I love playing with kids, and I and I love like my friends' kids and like my nieces and nephews. I love playing with kids, but I just myself don't ever feel like I want kids and that's like my choice my lifestyle and I I'm you know I can have that lifestyle if I want to right it's my life and yeah like I relate to your friend's concerns about financial situation because I don't think I would be able to provide for a, a, a child right now um, just struggling with paying rent and Student loan debt. I mean, I'm crippled in student loan debt right now. Like, I feel like I'm never going to escape that for the rest of my life. And, you know, all these things that that have weighed us down, weighed people down, especially young people right now. Uh, we're seeing trends of people not having kids as much, not starting families as much because it's it's become financially too difficult. Yeah. You know, and that's that. Why is it that? Our country is supposed to be the richest country in the world, and there's people that can't even think about having their own family because they don't think that they can provide, you know, financially. And and I'm definitely on that same boat. Like I, I don't know if I'm ever gonna have kids because, you know, for for men it's 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 not as you know there's not as tight of a deadline, but for women, yeah, you know, I'm 35, right? So I have maybe a good five years to decide if I can have kids, but, you know, that's not that much time left <laughs> to find, like, a, a partner and, you know, and going through all that. I also suffer from, um, like, a medical condition called mm. polycystic ovary syndrome that actually makes it really hard for me to have kids. Wow. So, and, you know, like, when people ask, like, oh, when are you going to have kids? Mm. That's actually deeply hurtful yeah. and deeply insensitive because... You know, people could be going through medical yeah. reasons for why they can't have children, right? And mm -hmm. and 
you know, it's it, it that's definitely my case, but I know it's not everyone's case, but in my case, yeah, I I do have a medical condition that um, you know, doesn't prevent me from having kids, it just makes it harder. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's 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 something that I feel like our society is shifting, you know, away from the mm-hmm. traditional like oh, everyone has to get married and has to have a kid. Like, I'm seeing a lot of more young people come out, like, gender non-conforming, non-binary, you know, not conforming to these strict gender roles. And, and, I, and I'm, you know, I really feel proud of those young people mm-hmm. that are standing up for who they are and what they believe in and, and not afraid, not afraid to, to be just themselves and not be what society tells them to be. You know, do you want that for your daughter? Like, is that something that you yeah, feel? I, I, I used to tell her a story about, like, I, I, I don't know if it was Socrates or Plato. Someone had this beautiful, like, poem about humanity and how the universe started. And I think it was, some, I'm going to butcher it, but it was something like we were all, like, all humanity was this ball. And we were nestled into each other in all these random ways, Right. Some of us with one person, some of us with three, one of, you know, like upside down, this way, that way, but all into this ball. And that something happened, like the Big Bang, which was actually very interesting that he said that because it was before people even spoke about the Big Bang. But that there was this explosion that separated all of the people. And now we, for eternity almost, are, are spending our lives trying to find that nuzzle that we had. And for some of us, that nuzzle is ourselves, Others, it's another person, a few people, you know, uh, a man, a woman, a, a GNC, you know, gender not conforming, anything. It could, and it's just like, to me, that was just like such a beautiful way to tell it because we don't know all the answers. And being able to use that kind of like poetry or visual, especially with my daughter, who's very creative, um, is super powerful. And, and also watching her tell it to other kids is, is kind of hilarious. (laughs) There was this ball, it was full of people's foot in the mouth, and then this way, that way, and then they exploded, and now this guy is looking for, that's why he has a foot, that's why he likes feet, you know. (laughs) Like, it's amazing where she's going with it, and it's completely, you know, like, I don't know if Socrates was going that way, but, or whoever it was. uh, (laughs) So she keeps me laughing, but but generally, yeah, like, how do I... I don't know. Um, I don't know the answers. And, and I know also that for a kid, they kind of have to feel safe, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I have to actually pretend to know that everything is going to be okay. And I can't put that weight on her where I want to be as transparent as possible. Because if you really think about what's wrong everywhere today, it's you, you, you look at the person's first boss, who was every person's first boss? And a lot of like labor organizers that I know, they say that the person's first deal with power defines them, mm. right? And usually a person's first deal with power is their boss, right? So it depends on what kind of boss they had and when they started out. I would actually go further, and I think the, first, the person's first boss is the parent. Um, and depending on the style in which you raise someone, you can change the world because I'm watching like my relatives who I love when their kid says, I want soda. And they say, no. And then they say, why? And they cry. I said, because I told you so. So immediately you're teaching that child 
and in, other, in collectively a whole generation that might is right. That this big giant person who has complete control over your life is right because they can force you to do something versus unpacking that and giving them the skills to, to make a decision that you would be proud of. So I would tell her, yes, you can have soda, but it causes cavities, right? So have some, but know that it's gonna cause cavities, right? Remember when you almost had a cavity, right? And then she makes that decision and it's almost always the same decision I would tell her to do if I wanted to control her, right? But it allows her to unpack it because my biggest fear as an activist and also, I don't know why I'm an activist, right? But there might be a gene or something or experience <laughs> in me that makes me really angry at being told what to do by someone who comes at it with no questions, no experience, right? So... I feel like giving her, so the biggest thing that I can, that my biggest fear for my daughter is that she's ever in a relationship or at work, romance, whatever, where someone has taken away her agency. So the more I exercise that, by the time she gets to that point, her self-determination is going to be her biggest muscle, right? And that's the way I, I look at it, that that's so beautiful. That's actually really beautiful. Just thinking about like letting your, just trusting that your kids are capable of unpacking, like you said, like being able to, to, you know, analyze, do I need soda? Do I want soda <laughs> that bad that I can risk having cavities, right? Like that is something that we don't trust our young people with. And and that, you're so right. Like, the parent is the boss, like, the first boss. And you really get, like, your whole life, like, the rest of your life can really stem from, you know, how you grew up as a child and, and how people treated you, how your parents treated you and how adults treated you as a child, you know. And, and just being able to let her unpack it herself and let her, like, work out those decisions herself it gives her that freedom in a sense, yeah. right? That freedom to be her own person yeah. and not just be this person her, that her parents wanted her to be. Yeah. Her mom is actually like started at first where even before our daughter would know what we're saying, if we took away the remote control and she would cry, she wouldn't cry if we just explained something, why we're taking it. Like she didn't understand what we were saying. But the fact that we explained it, she would just look at us and be like, all right. Like, <laughs> like immediately, <laughs> like literally out of the, out of the womb. Like, yeah, wow. like, like basically like you could just explain something in this calm voice and, and, and you start them off that path. And I just turned your podcast into a parenting show. But, uh, <laughs> I apologize for no, that. No, I think it definitely relates though to why activists are, are sick and tired of being told what to do. See, it's, it's, it's all back to human psyche, right? It all relates back to the, the psyche behind. There's going to be people that are the followers, quote-unquote, that will want to be told what to do, and they will blindly follow, a.k.a. Trump supporters. Yeah. <laughs> if you think about the psyche behind Trump supporters, they're the people that just blindly follow wow. whatever daddy. an authority figure tells oh, he's, them. He's daddy. He's daddy, right? Yeah, he's the ultimate authority figure. He's the ultimate parent. 
And and then you think about all the people who are resisting against that, resisting the status quo, resisting people who have this quote unquote authority. Um, they're the people that have questions mm -hmm. that um, don't want to just take every man's word for it. Um, they're the people who uh, are are thinking outside. You know, they're thinking differently and they're questioning constantly what is what what is good and what is bad and what is right and wrong and and a lot of things right don't have a good or bad or right yeah. and wrong but they're, they're questioning it they're they're working through that and I think that's what uh, that's what brings activists out like yeah. they're they're the people that are constantly saying like no this doesn't feel right and look at our entire history right slavery at one point was legal in this country and then there came a point where people said no this doesn't feel right. And, you know, it, it's, it, it comes down to that basic instinct of feeling of what's just and what is not. And I think they know that, right? Yeah. Like, so the right, they know that there's people who are going to react to, like, daddy power kind of thing, right? This fascist kind of uh, ideology. But they also know inside, even those Trump supporters, there's rebels inside. There's rebels in all of us. And they know that. So they actually purposefully, you could see, try to paint themselves both as the authority, the dad, and the rebel. That's why they have the Proud Boys. That's why they have, you know, this. And uh, some of our media, this is like mainstream CNN, Jake Tapper, that kind of ilk. Like, they sound really reasonable all the time. But they're actually inadvertently holding that up, this idea that, you know, there's this section of, of, of rebels who are, who are hurt economically or hurt spiritually or hurt any other way. And now, you know, this is how the, this is the, 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 they're coming home to roost versus the idea that they're under a spell. You know, we're, we fled that spell. You fled that spell in, in, in Uzbekistan. Uh, it, it wasn't communism that we fled. It was... It was white supremacy disguised as communism. In, in, in Vietnam, the war, that, everything, all of that is upholding white supremacy. And now we're here, and guess who are going to be the experts in fighting it, right? <laughs> like, yeah. this is the people, that, the, the people that are right now very much aligned and uh, maligned in some places. And on the left, I feel like growing in voice, um, and especially black people in America, growing in voice yeah. because they've have all the tools for like gourmet food it's not something rich people created it's something oppressed people created from from crumbs from the bones from the organs of things that people threw out jazz music hip-hop that doesn't come from a symphony or some kind of music school it came from like what was left around and traditions and this and that like hip-hop clothing, like all of that stuff is the stuff of survival. And now it's being packaged back to us and sold to us, right? Yeah. But it proves, it proves why. Why does black culture permeate even throughout our cultures, right, as Asians and this and that? Why does it permeate? It permeates because it, in this country, it's the ultimate survival culture. And instead of like, it's our job to unpack it and take the survival, separate the survival tools in it from the commercial tool. Speaking right. of survival, um, 
New York had a big win recently, yeah. right? And being from Queens, um, I oh want to talk God. about <laughs> right now this big, big news for New York City and the Huge. survival of the people of Queens, yeah. um, you know, their survival tactics and how they organized to get Amazon out of New out York. Of New York. I mean, that is a big, big win. The people <laughs> kicked out the largest corporation in the world. The richest man in the world. The richest man in the world. And a little a, a community of people did that. Yeah, it was really it was I remember the first meeting. It was a very small room. Very small room. People were on top of filing cabinets on the windowsills. It was packed. Every activist I've seen wow. through because Amazon touches on so many different aspects of our work. Yeah. So you know, I would look around. There was like Desi's rising up over here, right? Uh, over here, like they're talking about ICE collaboration, you know, and Make the Road and all these like immigrant groups about ICE collaboration and, and surveillance of Muslims and all of this kind of stuff. And then I would see like the, the public housing activists and the, and the black activists talking about uh, NYCHA and like the black identity extremist stuff, uh, which Amazon also arms with like militarized technology to track and to surveil. Mm -hmm. Then the labor organizers, every, everyone, any, any topic you can imagine, Amazon is, it has their finger in. And because of that, everyone connected to those topics came together in that one room. That is beautiful. And it was, and Ocasio was there. She was there. Yeah. This was after her win. She's already a celebrity, yeah, right? She's a yeah. world, like a world name at that point. And she came in, in the, sat in we're, the back. We're talking about yeah. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio AOC, yeah. AOC. Mm. She sat in the back, super humble, super nice. Like she belonged there because she did, because she was an activist, because she was active, um, and and we all just sat there and we didn't think that we couldn't imagine that we would win this fast. Yeah, I mean, it came lightning fast. It came lightning fast. It was a lot of work. It actually threatened in many ways to tear us apart in some ways as a as a as an organizing community because some people. Uh, were trying to divide us. And the victory came just enough time to give us all this kind of boost of energy and also for, for other fights of Amazon in Nashville and other places, uh, Staten Island, all these other places where, where Amazon is, is reigning uh, still. Uh, it's giving them extra like boost. Um, and I don't know, like it's it's... It's t to imagine someone saying they want to come and be a good neighbor and uh, literally get a ransom for it. Move into Queens, the most diverse place in the world that's already has its muscles flexed from Muslim ban, from ice hunting. Like, we've got it figured out. We're working on it. And then you just come into the middle of this place and you think you're going to win, Right? And, and, and not only that, you think you're going to develop ICE code. These are like high-level jobs, $150,000 jobs in that, in that thing, where they're not from Queens, the people that are going to be there. It's going to be importing 25,000 people mm -hmm. to come to Queens and then exporting our people to somewhere where there's no infrastructure, where there's nothing to support them because we built it here. And they're going to come. They're going to work in an office. They're going to drop their lunch in a garbage bin, and then we're going to have a cleaning person clean after them while they're coding 
the code to hunt their child tomorrow on the street. No way. Never. I mean, that was, that was such a fight to see, to witness. Just how the community came together and so strongly. You know, I, I think, again, like what, what I was saying about New York activists earlier is we are a very unique breed. I think, I think people here, uh, because it's so diverse and we come from so many different backgrounds, and I think a lot of people, because in New York we're kind of all forced to live so closely together, that we see more similarities with each other than differences because we're forced to see each other, forced to experience one another's uh, cultures and backgrounds and religions. And so because of that, I think that creates these uh, really strong bonds, right, between the different communities of color. And and it was just, that was, that was a sign of hope for me that we are capable of pushing back against the corporate overlords, right? Yeah, yeah. Like we are able, the power of the people mm -hmm. is strong. And it's not, it didn't come out of nowhere. We, from Occupy, that, right. that trained someone and then, and then Occupy Sandy trained people mm -hmm. and then Black Lives Matter and like all of the stuff is training us. And now even this network that was created by, by every group in Queens and Brooklyn, Manhattan, Bronx, everywhere, that group now is called like neighbors after Amazon. Like we're not stopping. Yeah, no. Like we're gonna no, pass a law. We're gonna pass laws to prevent this from ever happening. We're gonna create a model of like how a business can come in and, and actually be a good neighbor. That's great. Uh, yeah, like that's we're gonna do a lot of work. This is not stopping, and a lot of us are gonna be working in Nashville and other places, and we're gonna replicate this. Yeah, I think that's. I think this is definitely a sign to companies and corporations that. Um, they need to start working with the people more than working against us. And that this is proof. This is proof that, you know, the power of the people can can kick out the largest corporation in the world. I mean, this is proof that companies need to start considering communities more and and, and considering how their presence might affect those communities. Um, so I'm, I was just really glad to see this. Like, because, you know, when, when you're constantly hearing like horrible news every <laughs> single day, <laughs> you gotta oh, yeah. take those wins and you really kind them. of like move with them. You know? <laughs> yeah. This was a big one. Yeah. yeah. So I want to know, um, so tell like our listeners and, um, you know, audience, like where they can see more of your work and follow you and, you know, what are your social media handles, all that. Um, yeah. yeah. Let, let us, let everyone know. Uh, mostly I'm on Twitter. Uh, Raphael Shimanov. Um, I don't know. I'm not gonna spell it, but uh, like, uh, and uh, I do like stupid videos, and sometimes get some followers because of stupid videos. And uh, don't be modest. You have a <laughs> lot of followers. You and got then, followers. Not that much. And then, uh, <laughs> like, one thing I really, really want to say is, people who want to engage, like you, you kind of mentioned it earlier, where you said in any way, as a photographer, as a podcaster, as this and that. Like, I don't know how old the listeners are right now. Like, I don't know how, you are, how old you are listening right now. But if you ever heard of Salt and Pepper, right? There was, there was somehow a discussion at some point that one of them is going to be salt and one of them gets to be pepper. And everyone <laughs> wants to be called pepper. Like, the whole reason that band exists is so someone could be called pepper, not salt. And, but someone was like, you know what? I got you. I'm going to let you be called Pepper. 
I'll be called Saul. <laughs> All right. And now they're both like legends, right? Like they're, yeah. you know, like when, when, when. So like oh, what I'm saying with that is you can come at when you work on justice, there's this special like wind behind your back. It's almost like you're not working. Uh, and when you're not, it's kind of like every movement of yours is a struggle. And when you do this from any door that you go into, from the back, from the side, whatever, it's, it's insanely powerful. It's even more powerful if you're doing something when no one else wants to do it or where someone else is not really like... So if you have any kind of skill or you want to learn a skill, it's actually even more, not that you, let's just take all these skills and put it into this movement. It's, no, let us be your school. Come on, you can, this is safe. We could, you can make mistakes with us. Mm. You can't make mistakes like I did with like the ad agency. <laughs> be fine. You can make mistakes with us because we actually yeah. learn from your mistakes and we learn from each other. Yeah. So come and there's some spaces where you might not feel it because you might say something wrong and there's like a lot of that politics, but know that that's actually coming from trauma. It's not coming from a place where we're trying or people are trying to push you out of a movement. It's coming from a place of real hurt. So when you don't feel welcome because you said something wrong or offensive or there was a microaggression, a macroaggression, whatever kind of aggression, we, we still need you. We just need you better. And you got to just like hear that person and don't like run away. Just come. Uh, we got you. And learn. Yeah. Right? Just this come is and a learn. learning experience. Yeah. And yeah. just keeping an open mind about, um, you know, learning new experiences, meeting different people and, and learning about the issues and learning new perspectives. I think I think that's just like the start where you can really start is to try to learn and have empathy for those for those communities and and learn from those people who have been doing this work for a long time, right? Yeah. Um, so thank you again so much for being here. I, I I really enjoyed speaking with you. I know we could probably speak for like hours together since we go way back. Yeah, I think next time I'll interview you on your show. Sure. Because you have a lot. Yeah, I, I would, would love, love that. <laughs> uh, so thank you again uh, for everyone join to uh, for joining us at activist nyc the podcast your support is so much appreciated activist nyc is presented in partnership with listening party the creators of family fm follow the crew on instagram at listening party presents and at canal street market be sure to follow activist nyc on instagram facebook and tumblr at activist nyc see you again next time <laughs>